the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Thursday edition of The Dan Proft Show. After a very disturbing day on Capitol Hill, we'll get to the politically expedient Republicans and the infiltrators among the mob and uh, opprobrium directed at President Trump for the quality and timing of his response to the violence that occurred on the Hill. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that with David Drucker in the next segment. But I just want to start with the reset, the reset that uh, Vice President Pence provided late last night when uh, Congress reconvened to complete their electoral certification work, what he had to say. And, of course, what the outcome, the inevitable outcome, was memorialized in the early morning hours of today, the 7th. First, Mike Pence reconvening Congress. We condemn the violence that took place here in the strongest possible terms. We grieve the loss of life in these hallowed halls, as well as the injuries suffered by those who defended our capital today. And we will always be grateful to the men and women who stayed at their posts to defend this historic place. To those who wreaked havoc in our capital today, you did not win. Violence never wins. Freedom wins. And this is still the people's house. So may God bless the lost, the injured, and the heroes forged on this day. May God bless all who serve here and those who protect this place. And may God bless the United States of America. Let's get back to work. And then upon the conclusion of that work with... uh a truncated uh, set of ob- objections uh, in both the House and the Senate, uh, Arizona and Pennsylvania. Mike Pence uh, closed the session. The votes for President of the United States are as follows. Joseph R. Biden, Jr. of the state of Delaware has received 306 votes. Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida has received 232 votes. The purpose of the joint session having concluded, pursuant to Senate Concurrent Resolution 1, 117th Congress, The chair declares the joint session dissolved. And, of course, yesterday and into today was full of kindergarten school denunciations of violence as if people in America, as if Trump supporters and conservatives don't understand that the violence that occurred on Capitol Hill yesterday was wrong, was uh, the the breaching of the Capitol was a travesty. Uh, I'm in. Jonathan Turley's camp, it wasn't so much an insurrection as a desecration. Taking selfies sitting in Nancy Pelosi's chair is not much of a revolution, or much uh, much less were these uh, goons uh, much of a threat to seize control of the U.S. government. So there's a lot of histrionics, as you would expect, from politicians who give you the same cut-and-paste responses you've heard for years, I mean, just even in the recent past. A civility, tone, what's acceptable and what isn't. I remember hearing those same 
pronouncements from the same people three years ago after that uh, congressional baseball practice was shot up. What has improved in any of those categories in the intervening three years? So I think it's, uh, yes, of course, uh, the topic of what happened. And as I said, the politically expedient polls and the, the politics and the hand-wringing and the performance art resignations, we can get to all that. But I think the underlying question uh, of what was motivating some of the Trump voters, the Trump supporters there who weren't part of the group, no question about it, that breached the Capitol and uh, were involved in illegal activity. No other way to say it. Disorder promotes disorder. You can't tolerate it and you can't rationalize it. But you can uh, try to address underlying questions. And we've talked about that in the context of the uh, protests and riots and looting that occurred in the summer months with respect to police-involved shootings as well. And uh, I think it, the, the underlying question was perhaps best articulated by Leo Kelly, who was one of the Trump supporters, legit Trump supporters, who was in the Capitol when he shouldn't have been yesterday, part of the group that rushed in. Uh, in a LifeSiteNews.com exclusive, um, he uh, explained what his thinking was or the lack thereof. Why did you enter the Capitol? I think I just saw it happen, and I was like, "There's, there's something going on here. This is a, this is a moment in U.S. history that, like, it's, it, it's not unlike like the days of the beginning of the country. Like, it's just like there at at some point there's enough illegal behavior and there's enough uh, crimes against the Constitution being created committed by the elected officials that, you know, what are you supposed to do? None of my institutions are working none of this like this it's just what am i supposed to do what am i supposed to do this seems to be a question that is being asked by the forgotten men and women in america despite that the uh, answer the lack of an answer to that question in advance of trump giving rise to trump's presidential uh, victory in 2016 four years later the question is still being asked perhaps being asked with more urgency than even before trump because of the continuing institutional failure failure that punctuated trump's four years and the institutional opposition to an outsider like trump coming in what am i supposed to do it seems to me uh, that this is a question that uh, needs an answer uh, needs a constructive answer because if it doesn't get one, you're going to see more destructive activity. And I don't think anybody wants that. But you can't just say, I don't want it. You have to address real concerns, even if uh, those people, some of those people with concerns, and again, some people, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that were on the mall yesterday, and uh, a few hundred that engaged in, in illegal activity or violence. But some of those people are asking a question that demands an answer. And this is, the, and despite uh, some of the silliness uh, tr- trying to force this into a racial issue too, you know, deep intellects like Don Lemon and Doc Rivers, and I don't even know why I'm giving those names airtime because this is serious. These are serious times that require focus on serious answers, serious conversation. And those individuals I just mentioned are unserious, but uh, the effort to force this through a racial prism is ever present. And that was, Part of the part of the nonsense you heard from the cable news talking heads, including on SportsCenter of all places yesterday. What am I supposed to do? More from Leo Kelly, just really putting a, an underline and an exclamation point behind it. It's, I'm kind of conflicted because you know, 
you you violate someone else's space. You know, you force your way into a building. Um, in some ways, that that really feels wrong. But whose space is that? Mm-hmm. Um, that really does belong to us. Uh, and and there's you know that should only be an absolute last resort. And and you know. You know, we'll see how, I mean, I don't know that, you know, maybe we shouldn't have done that, but it's just, you come to the end of your rope and you say, what what, what, what else am I supposed to do? And you get swept up in a movement and there's a bunch of people, ru- you know, running and doing yeah. this. And it's just, all of a sudden you, you aren't, you don't, it's not the logical mind that's working anymore. It's you're, you're just reacting to things. And Yeah, well, the logical mind needs to be continually employed. You can't just give over to emotion. That's what the sentimental barbarians do. I mean, Leo Kelly is, doesn't strike me as a particularly wild-eyed uh, anarchist or anything of the sort. He's frustrated. He's exasperated. It's understandable. And he basically, you know, maybe what I did was wrong. He knows what he did was wrong. But it doesn't uh, undermine the imperative of answering that question. We appeal to heaven because we as individuals were powerless you know we uh we don't we've been betrayed by congress we've been betrayed by the judicial branch we've been betrayed by our uh local governments our 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 mayors and everything like i mean what are we supposed to do what are we supposed to do yeah what what are americans supposed to do like no 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 one will even listen to us none of these people in congress none of these people like they just don't listen Mm -hmm. well hello can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, obviously, nobody wants it to come to what it came to yesterday afternoon in D.C. But I say again, those, that question, what are we supposed to do, needs an answer. And we spoke a little bit about what some of those answers are yesterday. And we'll continue to have that conversation in the coming days and weeks because uh, these uh, challenges ahead are not fait accompli. There's nothing Uh, written in the stars about what will transpire even with Democrat socialist control of the Congress and the White House. I understand why people have lost faith in so many of America's civic and cultural institutions, but it doesn't mean that the battle for those institutions to live up to both the ideals as well as the constitutional requirements doesn't mean those battles are over and they can be fought constructively and that precludes violence. There needs to be a progression to the intellectual and civil fight over the course of a free society such that you gain legitimacy in pursuit of your values, in pursuit of what you know is right, rather than undermine the legitimacy of your position. We'll uh, pick it up with David Drucker after the break. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show yesterday amid the violence on the hill and uh criticized for issuing a statement too late president trump offered uh, this video message to supporters that had uh, shown up for the Save America rally. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it. 
especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. It's a very tough period of time. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election, but we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel, but go home and go home in peace. Trey Gowdy, former uh, rep from uh, South Carolina, of course, uh, described uh, Trump's comments as tepid at best, saying this. Just what a terrible day it is for America. I never, never thought I would see Americans scaling the wall to attack the people's house, the Capitol. So if you if you're thinking about moving to a narco state or a banana republic and you wonder what it's like, today was a good idea of what it would be like. That is not America. That is not this idea of America. We're a nation of laws. We're not a nation a, a nation of people who attack law enforcement officers uh, trying to accomplish a goal that was never going to be accomplished in the first place, Martha. This was always a fool's errand. So 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 why people are surprised that Mike Pence did exactly what the Constitution calls him to do? Um, I'm surprised that they're surprised. For uh, more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined again by uh, David Drucker, political reporter for The Washington Examiner. David, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, good to be here. You know, in advance of Trump's remarks at the rally, there was a speech that Don Jr. gave where he said uh, essentially the message to McConnell and the establishmentarians in the Republican Party that the Republican Party isn't your Republican Party anymore. It's Trump's Republican Party. And for those of you who don't support the objections that were being telegraphed at that point when Trump Jr. was speaking yesterday morning. I'll be in your backyard in a couple of months, essentially supporting your opponents, just like Trump said uh, the other day that uh, he would be back in Georgia in a couple of months to support who's ever running against Brian Kemp. I guess that my question is uh, your sense today, whether going forward past January 20th into the 2022 election cycle, which begins in earnest, is this still going to be Trump's Republican Party after yesterday? Does he still have the kind of sway? Will Kevin McCarthy want to enlist him to help with House races? We're going to have to wait and see, to be quite honest with you. But I think in the immediate, I think a lot of Republicans still believe that it's Trump's Republican Party, and they're still worried about primary challenges. And I think we saw that yesterday, because even though in the Senate there were only minimal votes to sustain the objections, in the House, there were a majority of House Republicans, I think about 120, 125 of them, somewhere in that in there, including the, the numbers one and two ranking House Republicans, Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise, who voted to object when they could uh, to several states. And those objections would overturn the election if sustained in actuality and throw the election to Trump, in theory. And so I think they're still very concerned because... They have seen the same non-evidence that Lindsey Graham has seen. I know there's a lot of belief. I've talked to voters. I've talked to Republican officials, and I know how people feel about the election. But even in court, the president's lawyers couldn't present any. And so Republicans in the House haven't seen anything different than Republicans in the Senate. But I think that they're up every two years. They're closer to the ground, and I think they're still concerned that Trump and his eldest son will show up in their districts and campaign against them. And that even if they don't, 
grassroots Republicans in their district will punish them nonetheless. And so I don't think we can conclude uh, this morning, despite everything, that it's not Trump's Republican Party. I think what we can say for those Republicans that appreciated the president's policies, were concerned about uh, opposing him because they understood where their voters were in relation to the, the outgoing president, that for many of them, this was a final straw of sorts. Not only is he on his way out, but he is now asking them, in their opinion, was asking them to do things that they simply could not countenance. I mean, you look at Vice President Mike Pence um, as somebody, and I've interviewed Pence about this. I've talked to people close to Pence. Pence doesn't get enough credit for being a savvy politician, but he made a decision uh, for several reasons that he was in. And if he was in, there were things that went along with that, uh, both for policy reasons and political reasons. But when the president asked him to do something unconstitutional and basically unilaterally as one man change the outcome of an election where hundreds of, you know, a couple hundred million people voted practically nearly, he, not only could he not stomach it, he, it wasn't constitutional. There's a last straw for everybody. And I think for many, that last straw was yesterday. And it's the same thing with the objections yesterday. Uh, whether you uh, believe the objections were proper or not, the idea that those people who said I was like Kelly Loeffler, for example, or, or Langford from Oklahoma, I'm going to object because uh, I think the uh, the Trump or the uh, Cruz third door uh, audit commission is a good idea. Well, now because of what happened on the Hill, we're going to show that the mob doesn't win, and we're going to get back to regular business and concluding our business. But now I'm going to change my mind. Well, what 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 changed? If it was a good idea before the mob entered the Capitol, then it's still a good idea after. Uh, it's 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 completely about optics, and it's the same thing with this 25th Amendment nonsense. Whether you could do it or you couldn't do it, what, what do you think that would engender? Do you think that would engender um, a a, 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 a flag waving ticker tape parade for you, um, members of the Trump cabinet or senators or whoever? Uh, is among the the whispering crowd. Of course it wouldn't. And it would further enrage the Trump base. So this is all sort of pathetic, transparent press release politics as far as I'm concerned. And while I don't uh, appreciate how Trump handled things yesterday, particularly with respect to Pence, um, the the idea that all of these institutionalists uh, with their moral hand-wringing, giving us uh, kindergarten lectures about how violence is bad, are doing something heroic, I also won't stomach. I mean, I think that there's a lot of political expediency going on. I, I actually think you're right. Look, if you actually believe that the presidential election was fraudulent, then it shouldn't really matter what happens from the perspective of protests and civil unrest if you feel like it's so egregious that you need to try and insert Congress into the role of overturning results or changing results. And I think that what that reveals, number one, what we like to call in Washington, vote no, hope yes. Yeah, I don't exactly. think Josh Hawley or, by the way, this is like a disease in Washington because a lot of the no votes, you know, there's some, I mean, look, I don't want to be too judgy here, right? But there's some real principled politicians on both sides. Their no votes are serious. They really hope the thing sinks. But then there are a lot of no votes on both sides, both parties that are often, they don't really want the bill to fail. And they, but they know that their no vote won't cause it to fail, and now they can register their principal objection without having to deal with the consequences. 
He is David Drucker, senior political correspondent for the Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. Thank you as always, David. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, as we uh, began the show talking a little bit about uh, some of the frustrations and some of the unanswered questions that lead to unproductive activity like violence in the Capitol yesterday, Jonathan Turley, law professor from George Washington University, you regularly see on Fox, was on Fox last night, and I think he made a good point about uh, faithlessness, the loss of faith in the system in America's institutions, and how this is a question or a exigency that really needs to be addressed. Condemning violence is easy. Reestablishing people's faith in the institutions that provide for a free society, that's a whole nother matter. And then this, this happened. And it's chilling for all of us because it shows a crisis of faith. You know, that's what the Constitution is. It's a leap of faith that we take together. The people that scaled the walls, that broke into those bodies, have lost their faith. And the question is how much of America is now faithless? And that's a serious problem. And you don't attribute that to any one person or any one party. It's a problem for all of us to deal with because the Constitution is valueless if people don't believe in it. And there's clearly a crisis of faith. There's a crisis of faith, a loss of faith, and that uh, may have... uh hit a new low yesterday, the combination of the what happened with the violence on the Hill and also the reaction to President Trump, who a lot of people put their faith in as somebody who would restore the rule of law, would recalibrate the balance of power between the federal government and the citizen, would, as the phrase goes, drain the swamp. This is what Turley had to say about uh, Trump's legacy after what transpired yesterday and his reaction to it. I think this has truly left any legacy that existed in tatters. The president was incredibly reckless today. His, his rhetoric has been the subject of criticism for four years. But today was a particularly low point. There was a presidential moment, but it was a vice presidential moment. It was the moment that Pence had when he sent that letter and defied President Trump. I don't think there's ever been a lower moment for the presidency of the United States. And that's going to take a long time to repair for the office. I don't think it will ever be repaired for President Trump. And I know some of our listeners will say, uh, oh, uh, Jonathan Turley is a liberal, self-described and uh, not uh, a Trump supporter. Uh, That's all well and good. But he's played it pretty straight down the line on legal matters over the last four years and, uh, you know, address the substance of what he has to say. Don't just attack the messenger for more on the substance of what he had to say. Pleased to be joined by Jim Antle again. He's Washington Examiner's politics editor, author of Devouring Freedom, Can Big Government Ever Be Stopped? Jim, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. What about uh, Turley's uh, observation about the, the loss of faith? And, and this is not new, but it may be reaching a critical juncture. 
Well, I mean, President Trump is to some extent a product of a loss of faith in the, the nation's institutions, particularly its institutions of government. And among Republican voters, he's a product of a crisis of confidence in the party's leadership. If Republicans were confident in their leadership, it is very unlikely uh, that Trump would have won the nomination and, the, and then the presidency. So in that context, I think you see there are a lot of people who don't trust much of what they hear unless it comes from the president or from Trump-friendly sources. Now, does that excuse uh, Trump's behavior? Does it excuse his rhetoric? No, it doesn't. But I think it's impossible to understand why there were people willing to storm the Capitol uh, based on Trump's comments and Trump's claims about the election uh, without looking at the context of this larger crisis of confidence. And I understand, I think that's right, the, the crisis of confidence gave rise to Trump, but now, particularly after yesterday, and per Turley's comments, uh, in the next two weeks, as he transitions out of office, as he committed to uh, last night via a spokesman, uh, or early this morning via a spokesman, where does that stand? Has the crisis of confidence been exacerbated after four years of Trump, or has it been ameliorated? I think it's probably been exacerbated. Obviously, there's a lot we have yet to learn about. Has this alienated people from Trump? Certainly, it has alienated a number of people who served in the administration, who've worked at the White House, who've been supporters of the president on Capitol Hill. But I'm not sure yet that it has broken his connection with his base, which remains a vital part of the Republican Party. And if they feel betrayed by the reaction of other elected Republicans, uh, we could see a deepening of that crisis. And of course, you know, the president, I think one of his big failings is he has never been able to unify people. I mean, there, there are people who are certainly drawn to him and support him. But he's not a unifier by temperament. Uh, I want to uh, talk about the Republican Party going forward. Uh, we'll do that with Jim Antle, Washington Examiner's politics editor, author of Devouring Freedom, Can Big Government Ever Be Stopped? We'll be back with more right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Jim Antle, Washington Examiner's politics editor, author of Devouring Freedom, Can Big Government Ever Be Stopped? Doing a postmortem on what happened January 5th, leading into January 6th, as we talk about it on January 7th. Uh, and, um, Jim, the report was that, uh, according to Senator Inhofe, that Mike Pence was uh, pretty apoplectic about uh, how he was treated by President Trump publicly for doing something that for not doing something he constitutionally could not do. Uh, right. And had suggested uh, words to the effect of after all I've done for him, I get called a coward on Twitter before Twitter suspended his account. Um you know, right. is is uh, is Trump sort of um, in his waning days uh, playing down to the characterization of him as King Lear? <laughs> yeah, to some extent, I think that's true. I mean, I, I, there are a couple things that that I think have have sort of plagued Trump uh, throughout his presidency and maybe even before. 
Oh, one, there's the sense that with Trump, loyalty is, is a one-way street. And, you know, he, he expects a great deal of loyalty, but that doesn't always uh, deliver that in return. And two, I think since he's been in office, I don't think he's always had a, a very realistic understanding of the limitations of the presidency and its powers. And I don't think he's always had a, a very uh, a detailed understanding of the separation of powers and things like that. Now, I, I don't go so far as a lot of people do and say that he's authoritarian. I think if you look at COVID and you look at some other situations, there certainly were opportunities there to, to grab more power and he didn't take them. Uh, but I do think that he doesn't always appreciate the finer distinctions of, of uh, certain constitutional niceties and, and the limitations of government. I think as a, as a businessman, some of these rules uh, don't make much sense to him. And you know, he's used to, to, to really just being the boss and you know, what the boss says is, is what goes. And I don't think he's always relied on, on the best people in terms of who he's getting uh, uh, adv legal advice from. I think that, that uh, you know, he was saved, I think, in large measure during the Mueller probe by getting good advice. But I think on the election challenges, uh, you know, he wasn't listening to people who were really giving him good advice. So they were advising him that fairly cockamamie constitutional theories that had no likelihood of success were the way to go. And I think that that helped fuel the, the rift with Mike Pence because Trump believed uh, Pence could do things that, that constitutionally he just couldn't do. Uh, when, when it comes to the Republican Party going forward and operating as a, something approximating a cohesive opposition party on the merits uh, in a Biden administration, it, how does that happen? Because it's not just uh, perhaps some policy disagreements that uh, Republicans have. It, it, they it's become quite personal in the waning days of the Trump administration. Uh, let me provide an example. Uh, George Will suggesting that Trump and Howley and Cruz, so including Howley and Cruz, who extend on beyond the Trump administration, uh, were engaged in acts of sedition by objecting to the state electors as they did over the last uh, 24 hours. Boy, if you feel like you have seditionists in your caucus, that it's hard to project comedy, isn't it? Definitely. Obviously, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley don't just have a problem with George Will. They have a problem with a lot of their colleagues on Capitol Hill. Now, if Republican voters side with Cruz and Hawley, that may not matter as much. But it certainly matters some, and especially since uh, now Republicans will be the minority in both houses of Congress, they need a certain amount of cohesion to be effective in opposition. Now, they are pretty big minorities in both houses. Uh, the Democrats actually saw a, a reduction in their House majority, and they, they really, if it weren't for Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote, it would be a 50-50 split in the Senate. So, you know, certainly the opportunities exist uh, to vote down things, uh, to change things, to alter legislation when you can't defeat it entirely. Uh, but that does require some ability to work together and for the minority to be unified. And, and clearly this is no, not just about policy differences anymore. Uh, it's about personality differences. It's about differences over the legacy of Trump. 
uh, and you know some of these guys don't like each other very much. Well, and and th- thinking about this perspectively into 2022, and the the hope of taking back the House, retaking the Senate, with the landscape perhaps being more favorable to Republicans in 22 than it was in 20, at least on paper. Uh, right. you, we, we we say that against the backdrop of the Georgia Senate race, where Trump is being blamed by some for not doing as much as he could have to whip turnout. So on the one hand, you say Trump is an albatross and he's the problem. On the other hand, you say we need Trump to generate the sort of base turnout, base plus turnout we need to win elections in states like Georgia and maybe congressional races in 2022. Who is going to to fill uh, a void that Trump could leave when it comes to energizing base plus turnout to win congressional and Senate seats in 22? I think that's right. You know, there's the there's the dilemma of Trump is is very good for getting the base to turn out. Uh, he's very dangerous to Republicans in the suburbs, which is an area that they need. But he also was able to attract uh, a lot of working class voters, particularly but not exclusively white working class voters, in Rust Belt states where Republicans have not really competed since the Reagan years, you know, since the 1980s. And even though he narrowly lost most of those states this time around, he still was far more competitive in them uh, than other recent Republican presidential nominees. So there is an element of Trump that grew the party and gave it voters that Republicans will probably need uh, to win national majorities, uh, certainly to win the White House. Uh, but he's also alienated other voters who are helpful to Republicans. So it's a really tough uh, dilemma. Is there some way uh, to to bottle up the Trump benefit uh, without also having the Trump baggage? Yeah, that is going to be a trick. Uh, Jim Antle, Washington Examiner's politics editor, author of Devouring Freedom, Can Big Government Ever Be Stopped? Jim, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show. I just want to uh, extend a conversation we were having with Jim Antle, Washington Examiner, before the break and uh, fold in some of the comments that Mitch McConnell made in his speech on the Senate floor, rising to uh, respond to the objection to the Arizona electors before the mob violence interrupted the day. And I understand McConnell gets a lot of criticism. Much of it uh, is... I'm much of it. I'm simpatico to, but uh, there was um, something that uh, he said during his remarks about uh, double standards, doing an effective job of reminding both the Senate and the nation of the hypocrisy of Democrats in um, arguing the case against Republicans exposing themselves to the same charge. Take a listen. Every time in the last 30 years that Democrats have lost a presidential race, they've tried a challenge just like this after 2000, after 2004, after 2016. 
After 2004, a senator joined and forced the same debate, and believe it or not, Democrats like Harry Reid, Dick Durbin, and Hillary Clinton praised, praised them and applauded the stunt. Republicans condemned those baseless efforts back then, and we just spent four years condemning Democrats' shameful attacks on the validity of President Trump's own election. So look, there can be no double standard. The media that is outraged today spent four years aiding and abetting Democrats' attacks on our institutions after they lost. But we must not imitate and escalate what we repudiate. Went positively uh, Jesse Jackson Sr. there with the rhyme scheme. We not we must not uh, imitate and emulate what we repudiate. And uh, something that he said uh, also uh, underscores one of my mantras, which is, we could be them, they cannot be us based on their disposition, based on their endgame, power at all costs, subjugation of people by any means necessary. And we should guard that distinction jealously. And uh, whether McConnell is the best spokesman for a principled consistency on all matters, policy and political or not, the substance of what he said still should be addressed on its merits. And something else that he said should be remembered as well. Uh, Let's not forget the deadlines we went through prior to January 6th. The voters, courts, and the states have all spoken. Right. And all of those, there were all of those opportunities to make the case. And this does not in any way diminish the legitimate queries about statistical anomalies and the legitimate charges uh, against uh, the abrogation of the rule of law in states like Pennsylvania, uh, as well as the substantive numbers of votes in particular categories suggesting election irregularities at minimum. But you had all of these arenas in which to make your case and both before the election and after the election. And here's where we're at. I say what what I said yesterday, to the extent that you have rule of law problems and administration of election problems at the local level, that is the purview of state legislatures, so state legislators and governors and state and local electorates. So what McConnell had to say, I I understand it's a bitter pill to swallow, but um, you can't dispute the merit of what uh, the Senate, former Senate Majority Leader had to say on Wednesday before the mob violence. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is Welcome the back Dan to the Dan Proft Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, including Parlor. The institutional reactions to what transpired yesterday at the Capitol... Big Tech has a lot to say. Of course, the focus has been on suspending Trump's Twitter and Facebook accounts. But uh, did you catch this from Facebook? Facebook announced it would be stripping all photos and videos featuring Wednesday's riots at the U.S. Capitol, claiming such content promoted criminal activity. I don't believe so. That, that, that's disturbing on multiple levels. It's disturbing, I mean, the hypocrisy piece of it. It's also disturbing the idea that um, watching protests, watching people committing illegal acts, then encourages other people to commit illegal acts because people have no agency, no mind of their own. They just uh, mimic whatever activity they see on the internet, which is absurd. And number three, in terms of what is disturbing about this, we should uh, absolutely see what happened. It's part of our history now. 
and we should take have uh, discussions about it and take away lessons from it, like, for example, uh, taking selfies in Nancy Pelosi's chair, it does not make you an American revolutionary. And also, like some of the individuals who breached the Capitol and were running amok were Antifa infiltrators. We don't, we don't want to understand what happened. We're just going to take the official narrative of what happened and then eliminate any evidence that would provide a more textured and robust dialogue about it. That, that's, that's troubling. Well, that's explicitly what they said. Uh, the, uh, uh, also, this that was underreported, two pipe bombs detonated in controlled explosion at the Republican National Committee's D.C. headquarters. A party official who was not authorized to go on the record confirmed to the Federalist.com the bombs were located in the back of the RNC's building while most of the party leadership uh, was away in Florida for its annual meeting. But nonetheless, so again, perhaps more indicia that there were more than just Trump supporters present in D.C. on the mall around town yesterday. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by Scott McKay. Who's the editor at the Federal? Uh, excuse me, editor at the Hayride and contributor to the American Spectator. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, what, what about this? Uh, starting with uh, you know, sort of the big tech response, uh, because this is going to be something that uh, continues to be at least hotly debated, where it's allowed to be debated in, in the Biden years. Well, I, I think you know you kind of stole my thunder on on two different things. Number one. The more pictures that circulate on social media, the more obvious it's going to be that um, infiltrators get identified. Um, and that blows up the narrative that, you know, these were the, the mouth breathing MAGA nuts that Trump has cultivated that, you know, are, are a menace to society and so on and so forth. I, I mean, if it's proven that, well, OK, the first people through the through the breach here were actually Black Lives Matter Antifa people that have been in Portland and Seattle and all these other places, uh, that narrative completely falls away and, you know, becomes counterproductive. So you can't have, you know, pictures of all these people circulating, uh, you know, for that. The second thing is I, I don't think they want ordinary Americans to see how many people were actually in Washington yesterday. Hmm. You know, I, I don't think they want, I mean, because I'm already looking at headlines, you know, for all these various things like, well, it was a sparse crowd and then it turned into a riot, um, you know, which is an abject lie. And the more pictures get out of what that event actually was, uh, you know, the easier it is to, to promulgate that lie. So I, I think that, you know, those are the two main reasons for this. But at the end of the day, you know, Facebook and Twitter are propaganda organs. That's what they are. They, I mean, they, they, they started out as social media platforms and they have 100% transformed themselves into, you know, partisan propaganda organs that, you know, are, are they, excuse me, are there to promote a narrative, uh, you know, friendly to the Democrat Party and others. Um, and, you know, and, and they're going to do what it takes to, to fulfill that mission at this point. You know, and the answer is just to get off. And, 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 you know, deny them, you know, that possibility. You, I mean, it's Parler and MeWe and whatever other, you know, social media services are out there. 
you know, that's where conservatives need to go, and they need to get off Facebook and Twitter. Well, um, and and the other know. thing too, uh, the other thing too, and just in terms of what you said about the left being overjoyed about this, I mean, some of the reaction again here to her, her death on on those uh, platforms you say we need to get off of Twitter and Facebook. I mean, I'm reading one from uh, a former Jeopardy contestant who. Uh, just says that one of the few good things that happened as a result of the Capitol protest in quotation marks is that Ashley Babbitt is feeding the worms and so on and so forth. And we see this. And, and again, that's not isolated. And we see a lot of uh, nonsense and ugliness and hatefulness uh, on these platforms uh, in every which direction. But it it, <laughs> it it speaks to the folly of suggesting that if politicians just make strong statements against violence and hate, that we're going to unify the country. And the people who are the most morally indignant are the ones that are the best uniters, no matter how hypocritical or disingenuous they are. And I'm sort of sick of being in that cycle that includes a lot of erstwhile conservative pundits on Fox and elsewhere, too, that are feeding us this line of bull jive. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the one that entertains me the most is uh, Eric Erickson, who uh, blasted out to his email list uh, yesterday morning following the, you know, twin debacle Senate races in Georgia, um, you know, saying, oh, we've got to get the, the Republican establishment and the MAGA people have got to come together because we're going to lose the country, blah, blah, blah. By the afternoon, he was, he was tweeting, shoot the protesters, and ended up getting himself bounced off of Twitter. And it's like, okay, um, <laughs> you might not be the guy that can unify the conservative movement anymore, Eric. Um, I, right. You know, but yeah, look, I mean, when Luke Letlow died of COVID, okay, and yeah. I mean, if there's ever a situation where you should be, regardless of your politics, you should be sympathetic to, you know, a 41 year old guy who had no reason to think he could he could die of this and leaves a wife with a 10, a 10 month old and a three year old. Like now is the time to put politics aside. Oh, no, he deserved it because he went around campaigning without a mask on. OK, well, like see, that see, literally was what was all over Twitter when let low died. See, this is this is the this is the key point, and that's a great example of it. That, that that of course the politicians don't want to address because they've got the intellectual depth of a cookie tray. But the 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 the, the point here is the sentimental barbarism that has taken over our culture, where you think that somebody else's death is the occasion for you to preen about some political position you're taking. I mean that that is that is sort of quintessential sentimental sentimentality, which is a synonym for barbarism, and that's really where we're at. And yesterday was, in part, an example of that. No, I would I would say that, I, and I, I would maybe go a little bit, you know, afield a here, and I'd say, think about how irritated those people get when you say all lives matter. Right? It doesn't just apply to the Black Lives Matter thing. When you say all lives matter, it means that. You know, Luke Letlow's life matters and Ashley Babbitt's life matter. And to those people, they don't. They want to be rid of the Luke Letlow's and Ashley Babbitt's. That's the real issue here. And and I, I think you're going to see that play out more and more and more as, you know, things get worse, which they will. I mean, you, you saw it in the Senate when they got back in after the disturbances were done. And I mean, you know, the Chris Coonses and Liz Warrens of the world – let loose 
And, I mean, there was no limiting principle to the invective that those people could throw out. They blamed the Republicans for everything bad in the world when they got back out there. Called them traitors and worse. And, you know, I mean, you know, and then they preach about unity. And it's like, are you kidding me? You're on you're on C-SPAN. What are we doing here? They're trying to stoke this. They want to stoke it. They want to, you know, demonize the people that disagree with them so that they have license to do the things that they've always wanted to do, which is to turn this country into an authoritarian, you know, paradise for the ruling class. And I mean, it's at this point, you can't even deny it. I mean, you know, the question of, of you know, whether this was all an, an agent provocateur thing, you know, I think you start there because you've got to look at who benefits from this. He is Scott McKay, editor at the Hayride, contributor to the American Spectator as well. Scott, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right, coming up, we're going to take a cleansing breath from all things presidential politics related and do a a stop, look, and listen on all things COVID related with Harvard-trained epidemiologist Eric Fiegel-Ding. That's coming up right after the break. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We welcome the Atlantic to the party of actually asking questions about COVID policies. And we spent a lot of time talking about young people, kids in school, young uh People, younger people, people in the workforce, people of working age, uh, whether they're on the employee side or the employer side, and the policies related there. Well, what about um, protecting those that we know, or the evidence being overwhelming, the exponential difference in mortality rates between the young and the old? So what about protecting the old? That's what Annie Lowry writes about in The Atlantic. As the country plunged into a deep and unusual economic recession last year, it also plunged into a deep and unusual social recession, atomizing families and friends, evaporating hours of laughter and care and touch. This phenomenon hit nobody as hard as America's seniors, who are much more likely than their younger counterparts to live in care facilities, many of whom have struggled to connect in a socially distanced or virtual fashion. She talks about how, per a study, how much the presence of human contact has declined among seniors in these facilities this being particularly important. Survey conducted by Alterum, a nonprofit healthcare research and consulting group, finds just 5% of residents and care facilities said they had visitors three times a week compared with more than 50% before the virus hit. Nearly all said they did not leave their care facility for a meal or go shopping compared with 40% before COVID. Only one in four was going outside for fresh air. Half said they no longer had access to activities such as art classes or group exercise. Nearly 90% said they could no longer eat meals in the dining room. Two-thirds said they no longer left their rooms to socialize with their peers. A uh, professor of healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School. When we look back on this in the years to come, I imagine there's going to be a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking around whether it was a good idea to blockade older adults in their nursing home rooms for eight, nine, ten months out of the year without letting them have access to their families. I think we're going to look back and say, what the hell were we doing? What we were doing was failing to save seniors' lives or maintain their livelihoods. Well, that's quite an indictment, isn't it? And by the way, some of us have been asking, what the hell are we doing from the outset across a range of COVID-related policies? And we will continue to. 
which leads us to our next guest. We're pleased to be joined by Dr. Eric Fiegel-Ding, who is an award-winning Harvard-trained epidemiologist and public health scientist. Dr. Fiegel-Ding, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Hope everyone's well. What about uh, what uh, Dr. Grabowski from Harvard Medical said about uh, policies related to isolating seniors? Yeah, I think we really ignored a lot of the welfare of seniors. It's I agree there's a lot of loneliness. There's a lot of issues besides the pandemic that we have to look into because our healthcare system is just so neglected in so many different ways. And our mental health care uh, is actually the, one of the worst mental health care systems in the entire world. So I think there will be a lot of things we have to look back on of we really screwed up in so many different ways for our seniors, for our children, how we basically prioritized bars and, uh, before schools and now have hurt our next generation for decades to come. Well, uh, I want to get to the uh, mutation in a second, but with respect to schools, there's a November 2020 study that was published in JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association. That's uh, findings were thus the uh, analytical model found missed instruction during 2020 could be associated with an estimated 5.53 million years of lost life. This loss in life expectancy was likely to be greater than would have been observed if leaving primary schools open had led to an expansion of the first wave pandemic, meaning these findings suggest that the decision to close U.S. public primary schools in the early months of 2020 may be associated with a decrease in life expectancy for U.S. children. So that study seems to suggest actually the schools should have never been closed in the first place, and they should shouldn't be closed now. And yeah, if you want to upgrade in real time as we go on and we learn things, well, that's all well and good. But the net net position is schools should stay open and they should have stayed open from the outset. There have been many studies on schools and that is just one of the studies. There's, I would say, a dozen other studies on the infectious and transmissions during school. school. The schools we do know add anywhere from point a 1, 2 to a 0.2 to 0.3 in the R value, which is quite significant uh, in, in many ways. Now, the issue with primary schools, I think primary schools, the common virus uh, and, the, and the one, especially in the spring, was uh, shown that kids are less susceptible. In the primary school, kids are less susceptible than adults, but that's not for true teenagers. But the problem is with the new variant, uh, which we know we'll talk more, it's, that may no longer be the case anymore. But that said, kids are, do transmit the virus more. They're less susceptible if you expose, but they do transmit it more uh, and uh, transmit it faster because of their exposure and transmission. There's three different what? things. Wait, wait. Tr- transmit it more where? In what circumstance? In what environment? Okay. So uh, for a virus, there's three aspects. Um, there is how easily a, a someone transmits it, gives it to someone else, how easily someone gets it if you're exposed, uh, and how much exposure someone has. For example, a kid run, running around in school has a lot of exposure, while someone in a nursing home does not have much exposure. So there's these three dimensions, and kids are less susceptible, true, especially the, the younger kids, teenagers not so. The young kids are less susceptible, but they have more transmission, uh, and they we know that they bring it to families and build the most common well well do we know that i, I mean again yeah. i know there's competing studies all, all over the place but so see, this came uh, from the uk sage group kids uh, are anywhere uh, from two uh to seven times more likely to, to be the first to have it in a family they're basically to transmit they're also transmitting it more 2x more transmission 
that well, said, then, if you give it to them, they're too, uh, they're about half as likely to get it. In, in terms of them being um, b- b- being um, facilitators of transmission, how do you explain the mm-hmm. Yale research study that surveyed 57,000 child care providers across all 50 states in this country last year and found that there was no difference between the spread in those child care facilities that stayed open versus those that did not among uh, you know children to adults? So how, how do you, how do you so explain that? So child care facilities are usually daycares, right? And they're the extremely, extremely young kids. And again, I, what I'm saying is that in the spring, it was um, the, the, the strain that we had in the spring is also much less infectious than we have uh, today and much less infectious than the new variant. We're on the 2.0 uh, variant, technically. The, the common one that's currently around is a 2.0 version. Is there enough data on these new mutations to make those sort of conclusions about transmissibility? Uh, yeah, the numbers I said about 2x actually comes from the UK's official, it's the equivalent of their CDECU uh, recommendations. He is Dr. Eric Fiegel-Ding, award-winning Harvard-trained epidemiologist and public health scientist. Dr. Fiegel-Ding, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Stay safe. Just a comment on our conversation with uh, Dr. Fiegel-Ding uh, about uh, all things related to COVID. Didn't have enough time to push back, and I'm not going to pillory him in absentia. We'll get him back on the show. But I'm not buying everything that he was putting down about this new strain or about policies related to it. And I just want to point people to a new working paper out by the National Bureau of Economic Research that looks at the long-term potential for excess deaths because of unemployment as we have another 800,000 Americans file for first-time unemployment benefits announced today. These researchers from Duke, Harvard, looked at, uh, uh, looked at this issue of unemployment and its you know, direct correlation to excess deaths. The bulk of excess deaths do not occur suddenly, but years in the future, and they don't return to normal for up to 20 years down the line. So it's important to, again, look at trade-offs, which we've been emphasizing on this show, lives versus lives, when it comes to COVID-19 policy making. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, continuing our discussion of social cohesion, which is really sort of the overarching theme of our discussions of everything that has transpired in the last uh, 24 hours leading up to the last 24 hours, really the last 12 months, the last four years, the last 30 years, the last 50 years, arguably. Uh, Yesterday, as uh, some are wont to do in 2020, 2021 America, force everything through a racial prism. That's what Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo did on CNN, characterizing the uh, violence on Capitol Hill thusly. Making people believe that they have the right to do certain things because they're entitled to it, because that's the way it's always been, because they have been the preeminent voice, that this country is changing. You don't want them changing your country. You don't want them changing your history, your heritage. What is that? That's all code for what is what is heritage? What does that mean? Much of the history that has that that's been taught, that has been improperly and wrongly taught, that the history that that leaves out people like me and, and speaking of that, 
Imagine if the people on the Capitol today look like me, Chris. Where do you think we would have been today? It would have been a bloodbath. For uh, more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by William Vogley, senior editor of the Claremont Review of Books, the author of Never Enough, America's Limitless Welfare State and the Pity Party, a mean-spirited diatribe against liberal compassion. William Vogley, pleased to have you back. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Uh, How do you uh, respond to... um, Don Lemon's and Chris Cuomo's characterization of the the hypothetical of if it had been a a Black Lives Matter protest at the Capitol and the same violence would have occurred, it would have been a bloodbath, as he uh, characterizes words like heritage as dog whistles. I don't think it was a bloodbath in August on North Michigan Avenue in Chicago when predominantly, uh, though not entirely, I guess, black group of looters showed up from all over the city and besieged the, the stores there. So I don't know where this idea comes that the uh, summer George Floyd protests and in many places riots were handled harshly and brutally. And the ones yesterday were treated uh, respectfully because the authorities, the power structure somehow sympathized with the uh, either the the skin color or the objectives of the people doing the uh, misdeeds. Yeah, it, it it seems to me any opportunity to try to advance the story that uh, when it comes to black Americans and police, police are going to treat black Americans more harshly than they treat white Americans, whether individually or in a group context. Sociologists, including uh, Roland Fryer at Harvard, uh, have suggested well, there's not really a lot of evidence to support that. But uh, in the modern context, it's the um, narrative that matters, not the underlying facts, at least in some corners. That's right. It's the application to policing, to housing, which we may talk about, of an idea that first cropped up in employment law in the 1960s, disparate impact, which is that you can have a neutral law, but that if its implementation affects one identifiable group differently and more adversely than another, then even if there's nothing uh, of a racial classification scheme in it, if there's no ill intent in its enactment, just the fact that it affects different groups differently is justification for treating it as suspect, as something that needs to be changed or revised until the outcomes are more fortunate. And that philosophy has graduated into uh, you don't even have to assess disparate impact anymore because everything is systemically racist. So by definition, it needs to be remade in uh, the image of the identitarians or, or the, the, mm-hmm. the, those with mm-hmm. racial grievances. I mean, that's essentially what they've been saying for the better part of the last year is that you have some systemically racist institutions, both police departments as well as prosecutors' offices. That means that we need to redefine what criminal justice looks like in America. Yes, the systemic racism is an extremely hazy word. And if you try to pin down its meaning, you quickly get lost in verbiage and jargon and an absence of real logic. The argument goes that there are these disparate outcomes, a disproportionate number of black people being incarcerated, for example. And therefore, there is this kind of mysterious thing in the middle, systemic racism. If that were to disappear somehow, then all of the outcomes would be exactly proportionate. The percentage of blacks and Malaysians and this and that in prison or in Fortune 500 uh, boardrooms would be exactly what it is in the population. The, uh, the, the famous economist Thomas Sowell points out that in the history of the world, anywhere you look, there is no multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious, any diverse society that has this kind of proportionality. 
everywhere in the world, there are, are big differences for a variety of often complex reasons. When we come back with uh, William Vogley, I want to talk about a, another such uh, phrase that's hazy and uh, lives on in mythical forms, despite perhaps the underlying complications of the phrase, white flight. You wrote about that recently, and we'll discuss it. Uh, William Vogeli, senior editor, Claremont Review of Books, author of Never Enough, America's Limitless Welfare State, and the, as well as The Pity Party, a mean-spirited diatribe against liberal compassion. We'll be right back with more. The more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with William Vogley, senior editor of the Claremont Review of Books, author of Never Enough, America's Limitless Welfare State, as well as The Pity Party, a mean-spirited diatribe against liberal compassion. Before the break, we were talking about... Uh, the process of urban myth-making, uh, specifically with respect to systemic racism and some of the sort of white privilege arguments that were made uh, in response to the violence on Capitol Hill yesterday. And, uh, William Vigeli, you, you uh, wrote about um, another such uh, urban myth, or at least a misnomer, a misunderstanding about so-called white flight that occurred in the 60s and 70s out of urban centers into suburban areas uh, that uh, provides, frankly, in part, the argument that uh, the left makes for things like expansion of, quote-unquote, affordable housing into the suburbs and the like. What uh, What is perpetuated about our understanding of migration patterns over the last 50 years versus maybe some of the animating factors for that migration? And uh, you specifically mm -hmm. zero in on Chicago which I know a little something about as a Chicago native, so I was very interested in your piece. Oh, good. I'm a Chicago native, too, so it, uh, the, the subject uh, appealed to me on that basis as well. In 2019, uh, Michelle Obama gave a talk at, at Obama Foundation Summit uh, where she spoke of uh, growing up in South Shore, uh, a neighborhood uh, on the lakefront there. Uh, and uh, she said at the time, she said that, she was born. She was born in 1964. That her family moved into uh, South Shore when it was a predominantly white neighborhood, and um, is, uh, her quote is: uh, "Upstanding family like ours, we were doing everything we were supposed to do. We moved in, and white folks moved out." And she said the white folks moved out uh, simply because they didn't like the color of our skin, the texture of our hair, artificial things that uh, don't touch on the values that people bring to life. Um, and uh, her account and those of, of people who uh, read it or heard it and endorsed her, such as the uh, Chicago Tribune columnist uh, Darlene uh, Blanton, um, you know, said simply that, that it's a very simple story. Um, uh, white racists uh, saw the first black family move in, and no matter how nice that black family was and respectable and hardworking, the uh, the bigoted whites said, uh, this is it. We, we don't want anything to do with this neighborhood. We're packing up tonight. And we're on our way to the suburbs. Um, the the uh, My article in the uh, uh, City Journal, Manhattan Institute's publication, uh, contends differently, that this is a uh, considerably more complicated phenomenon. Well, right. I mean, I, I, I remember, because I've uh, uh, read up on this a bit and talked about this a bit on radio programs, I remember Tribune articles from the 1960s 
where you have residents of and and into the seventies and eighties, where you have residents of uh, black neighborhoods on the on the south side of Chicago that were uh, definitively middle income. Black residents of those neighborhoods saying, "When you do not, we do not want you exporting, for example, Section Eight voucher holders to our communities. We do not want you sending people who are living in the projects in Chicago to our communities." because we know what that does to our communities. This was uh, black homeowners in Roseland talking about uh, black residents of the city that were uh, essentially state dependents, and they were concerned. So it it had nothing to do with race. It had to do with sort of um, the ability to live independently and concerns about that, concerns about impact on the work that those families had done in those neighborhoods and the success that they had found in the the way that they had learned to live independently versus uh, what um, some of the others uh, were going to bring to their neighborhood, to their community. But that sort of nuance, that, that, that sort of you know, reality on the ground of what was transpiring is all sort of papered over because it's just easier to say white people were racist and that's why they left and they left uh, black people sort of holding the bag and, and, and without uh, mm-hmm. the means for economic empowerment and the like. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the, um, um, you know, and, and beyond that, I think there are um, sociologists say that that um, th- these neighborhood changes are driven by pull factors and push factors. The pull factors are mostly uh, people wanting um, uh, to live in less densely populated areas, a little more green space, um, uh, better access, that kind of thing, more parks, you know. The push basically come down to, yeah, schools. Push factors basically come down to crime. If uh, crime rates go up, um, people uh, people start getting out quickly, um, and this is this is what has driven um, uh, an important factor in white flight in the fifties, sixties, and seventies. More recently, as you say, it's um, it's an important factor in black flight. Um, uh, Middle class families leaving neighborhoods that are having uh, problems with gangs and shootings and, and uh, this kind of thing and going to places where that's not a problem. Well, this has happened in Chicago. Between 2010 and 2020, uh, 200,000 black families uh, uh, left Chicago for exactly the reasons, right. at least the, you know, that, that those are some of the supposition as well as the survey research, exactly the reasons you're describing. So what are they saying? And oh, by the way, some, an overlay here, of course, is that over the last 50 years, uh, Chicago has been lorded over by nothing other than machine Democrats or Democrats generally, including off and on uh, black mayors and, and, uh, and, but, but always, and, and black uh, city aldermen, of course, in the, in the black wards. Um, but always Democrats. And, and so it's, you know, it's the conservative Republican races that are the problem uh, in Chicago, this imaginary group that Michelle Obama and others conjure up when in point of fact, you're talking about a group that has had no power and no and virtually no policy influence. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think you're right about that. Uh, you know, it, it, this goes back to the disparate impact argument. So what, what would it mean for housing to be completely free of racial considerations? Uh, does, does that mean that, um, um, I mean, the, the, that every, measure, every town, every neighborhood in a large metropolitan area has a, um, a racial makeup that is Chinatown as a racist place? I think that there is a disposition among all sorts of people to live in places where they feel comfortable, where 
people like them are um, identifiable. This to say that this is um, proof of seething hate-filled racism, reduce it to that. Uh, take to taking a complicated phenomenon to a uh, unfortunately uh, an. A simple one. When we come back with William Vogley, I want to pick up on this and talk about what happens when black families actually have the resources that provide options to choose better lives, better outcomes. More with William Begelli right after this. podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, talking with William Begelli, and I want to talk about the infantilization that goes along with the line of argumentation as offered by Michelle Obama. Black families wouldn't make different choices if they could, for example, with respect to living in a safer neighborhood, with respect to sending their child to a better school, if uh, if uh, they were similarly situated to so many of their uh, white colleagues when it came to resources to have those sorts of choices. And when we see actually uh, black families with those choices to move someplace that's safer, to send their kid to a school that's better than the neighborhood school they're otherwise zoned in. They make those choices. So that says something about mm-hmm. that uh, narrative, too, doesn't it? It does. There are two ways people express themselves, what they say and what they do. And of the two, what they do is usually the more revealing and the more accurate. Actions in terms of sending their own kids to the best schools they can, into moving their own families to the safest neighborhoods they can, indicate that the idea that that racism is the determinative factor in American life is very hard to sustain. It, it also seems to me like this is um, that you know making an easy scapegoat of the results of one-party rule in places like Chicago for so long is sort of the order of the day. It's easier just to blame white racists than it is to explain how my party and the people I vote for who've been in charge for in Chicago a century really have left Chicago the most de facto segregated city in America arguably and a situation where for example the neighborhood I live in in Streeterville versus a neighborhood seven miles away from me Inglewood I'm in a predominantly white neighborhood Inglewood is a predominantly black neighborhood the life expectancy in my neighborhood is 90 years old. The life expectancy in Inglewood is 60 years old. That is the largest disparity in the country between two neighborhoods located in the same city. How do you explain mm-hmm. that fact when it's your people who've been in charge for 100 years? You just say, oh, well, the people in Streeterville or the people in the suburbs are racist and they've left the people in Inglewood to die. There's the H.L. Uh, Mencken definition of democracy, which is giving the people what they want and giving it to them good and hard. The Chicagoans have been voting for Democrats of one sort or another for um, about 90 years. I think the, the most recent Republican mayor in Chicago served in the 1920s. As you say, if you have these kind of one-party uh, rules where all of the debates, all of the contests are within a single party, then... It's like a like a monopoly, a business that has no competitors. Then you don't um, 
sort of extend yourself to uh, to take account of other possibilities. And it's also politically, it's sort of self-perpetuating because all of the people who might be inclined to to listen to another party see the futility of doing so. And instead of an organizing party or a libertarian party or, or something, they move to the suburbs, they move to uh, the, the Sun Belt, and the democratic city becomes even more democratic. Yeah, it's self-propagating, exactly. William Vogley, senior editor of the Claremont Review of Books, author of Never Enough, America's Limitless Welfare State, as well as The Pity Party, A Mean-Spirited Diatribe Against Liberal Compassion. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Nice to talk to you, Dan. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, including Parler. Just... Uh, while you're hearing from uh, all the politicians on cable news and in print online about how they're opposed to violence and specifically that Trump is the source of all things that are wrong in this country and the source of uh, the instigation of violence in this country. Uh, just uh, a little bit of a rewind back to, you know, all the way back to August of last year. Uh, this is Ayanna Presley, Francis Parker Spice, one of uh, AOC and the squad's members. This is Ayanna Presley on MSNBC explaining the rioting that was going on in the streets of America. I'm looking to the public. You know, this is as much about public outcry and organizing and mobilizing and applying pressure so that this GOP-led Senate and that these governors that continue to carry water for this administration, putting the American people in harm's way, turning a deaf ear to the needs of our families and our communities, hold them accountable. Well, make the phone call, send the email, show up. You know, there needs to be unrest in the streets for as long as there is unrest in our lives. And unfortunately, there's plenty to go around. There needs to be unrest. There needs to be unrest on the streets for as long as there is unrest in our lives. Was that a uh, call to unity? Was that a call to cooler heads? This is just an example of one of the pronouncements that was made over the many months uh, as uh, looting was redefined into symbolic taking by none other than the Pulitzer Prize winning 1619 Project founder, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner, in response to rioting in Philadelphia, policing and prosecution are both systemically racist, quote-unquote. And then all we're hearing is about how people have lost faith in our institutions. And why is that? It's all because of Trump. Is that right? Defund police, everything is systemically racist in America. All the institutions are because America is systemically racist. And that doesn't undermine the credibility of those institutions in the minds of the body politic. And so when Trump departs on January 20th, all of what has transpired up until this point, we'll just evaporate into the ether and the sun will shine and Americans will have confidence again in all of their organizing institutions, civic, cultural, governmental. Is that right? Polling right now has 45% of independence. Dan Henniger reporting in the Wall Street Journal, part of his column. 45% of independents have lost faith in our electoral system. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend John Hinderaker. He is the president of the Center for the American Experiment, founder of PowerlineBlog.com. 
Uh, thanks for joining us again, John. Appreciate it. Um, so what about this, uh, the uh, rallying around uh, the integrity of our institutions, the protection of our institutions by, ironically, guardians of those institutions based on their positions who have lost much of their legitimacy well before yesterday afternoon? So liberals are opposed to rioting now. <laughs> I'm glad to see that. You know, just like that. Uh, and the, the quotes that you read, you know, were, were typical of many that we've, we've heard from liberals. You think about the day when Trump was inaugurated. There was a worse riot, much worse riot that day than, uh, than we saw yesterday. And, of course, the last time somebody tried to break down the door to the Senate chamber, it was during the uh, Kavanaugh hearing. Remember that? When some, mm-hmm. some Democrats were trying to break in. So, you know, you could go on and on. How, how, how about uh, James Hodgkinson? You know, we're, we're still waiting for a conservative equivalent of, of James Hodgkinson. So, so you the know, the hypocrisy shooter. is, yeah. you know, is so thick you can, you can cut it with a, with a knife. I mean, I've been critical of what Trump has been doing in the last few weeks. And not so much because it was inciting violence, although I did question. He said, oh, my supporters are coming to D.C. and they won't stand for the election being stolen. And I, I question, what does that mean? They won't stand for it. You know, they're going to battle with the police. They're going to start a revolution. You know, what are you talking about? I think that kind of talk can be faulted in exactly the same way that kind of speech on the left could be faulted. But I've been, I've been more broadly critical of Trump in recent weeks because of the way that he has really held out a a false hope. And he's not the only one. A number of people on on the right have been doing this. You know, that was never in the cards. If you want to prevent voter fraud, you really have to do it before the election. You know, there's no way in 60 days between election and inauguration that you can conduct some kind of a legal proceeding in one state, let alone five or six states, that's going to result uh, in, a, in a factual finding that uh, you know, the apparent loser of the race actually won it and, and have that affirmed by, by the relevant appellate court. I mean, there, there was never time for that to happen. It was never in the cards that that could happen. You know, I think it's quite likely that Trump is right and that if, and that if, if, if you only count legal votes and every, every legal voter only votes once, it may well be true that Trump should have won the election. We may never know that because the problem with the lex, well, one of the many problems with the lax standards for mail-in voting and dropping ballots into, into boxes and so forth that the Democrats established for this election, one of the problems is that the same laxness that enables voter fraud in the first place can make it impossible to prove after the fact. But there were procedural opportunities, both in courts of law, but but with state legislatures in particular, there was the opportunity, and, and, and again, this is up to the state legislatures, and they all demurred, but to say to the Pennsylvania State Legislature, how can you let the Pennsylvania Supreme Court usurp your authority and rewrite election law in the state of Pennsylvania? Wisconsin State Legislature, how can you let an administrative agency redefine indefinitely indisposed so that uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, cheeseheads get to vote without the voter ID requirement? There are these accountability mechanisms, but, and you have to pursue them, but you have to sort of pursue them with sort of what you're describing, the sense of what is possible and where you can make your best arguments most effectively and most consistently to bring people in the public arena along with the fights you're having in, uh, with state legislatures or in the courts of law. 
Well, I think that's right. And the same thing happened in Minnesota, where I live, by the way. There was a change in, in mail-in voting procedures to eliminate the witness signature requirement. That happened in, I think, 10 or 15 states, and it was the result of a collusive lawsuit part of the Democratic Secretary of State that eliminated the only safeguard we had, inadequate though it was, to protect the integrity of, uh, of mail-in voting. So that kind of thing did happen across the country, and there's a good reason why many people, as you point out uh, in the polls, say they are skeptical uh, that this election was conducted fairly. And frankly, Dan, that, that's something that Joe Biden and the Democrats are going to have to live with for the next four years. You know, I think that skepticism is, is likely to grow. I think over the next year or two, people are going to be investigating and researching and writing books, arguing one way or the other, either that, either that the election was stolen or that the election was not stolen. What I would say is that the Democrats definitely tried to steal the election. And whether, whether in hindsight they needed to do that, we still don't know. In other words, they might have won the election honestly anyway, but they certainly you know, went out of their way to undermine the integrity of, of, of that election in, in many states across the country, and they're going to have to live with the consequences. Uh, Mitch McConnell, in his uh, speech yesterday before the mob assault on the Capitol, responding to the objection that was raised against the uh, Arizona electors, talked about sort of the double standard, and we don't want to succumb to the double standard, and, and as much criticism as McConnell has received. He did point out the hypocrisy of the left, which was useful, talking about the objections that Democrats leveled after the 2000 election, after the 2004 election, after the 2016 election, including being cheered on by the likes of Durbin and others in the Senate, in, in his, you know, in the body in which he resides. So that was useful. And he basically suggested that we rightly decried those fallacious objections. And so we need to have the same position now that we did then. So that, that's a, a fair enough argument to make, whether you agree with it or disagree with. But I think the larger problem that McConnell and Republicans will have going forward in the minority is the belief that they are willing to be principled across the board, number one. In other words, willing to hold themselves to the standard that they set across every issue, not just when it comes to, for example, certifying a foregone conclusion in a presidential election. And number two, that they're willing to take the fight to the Democrats to hold them accountable for not subscribing to the principles that they apply to Republicans or not subscribing to the black letter of the law. And that's what Republicans have been seemingly unwilling to do in so many instances, thus the lack of legitimacy, thus the entrance of Trump. Well, we'll see, Dan. I mean, I, I, think, I, think, I, I think you make a good point. Before Trump was even inaugurated in 2017, the Democrats were already talking about resisting, right? The hashtag was resist. And I've read on the power line, I plan to resist Joe Biden and his, and his administration every day for the next four years. And, and I, I'm pretty confident that, that McConnell, in his, in his unaccustomed role as set-up minority leader, uh, is going to resist. Uh, I certainly hope so. And, and I, think, you know, I think we'll see, you know, I think we'll see how, how effectively um, Republicans in Washington uh, try to hold the Democrats accountable. He is John Hindraker, president of the Center for the American Experiment, founder of PowerlineBlog.com. John, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you, Dan. Bye-bye. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. 
Welcome back to the show, and we uh, move from a discussion of what's past to a discussion of what's before us uh, in terms of uh, Biden administration policy. I know all the attention yesterday was uh, in the direction of uh, Biden's nomination of Merrick Garland to be his attorney general. But uh, I want to focus on education, pre-K through post-secondary, and uh, what uh, Miguel Cardona as Biden's Secretary of Education could mean for the power of teachers unions, the whole matter of college debt cancellation, the uh, expansion of school choice in the nation, even though, uh, again, many of these issues are state and local issues. Some certainly involved, all of them involve the federal government, frankly, to varying degrees to help us uh, have that conversation about what we can anticipate. We're pleased to be joined again by Williamson Evers. Senior fellow at the Independent Institute in Oakland, California, director of the Institute Center on Educational Excellence. He was a U.S. Assistant Secretary of Education for Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development under the George W. Bush administration. Williamson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So uh, give us some perspective on uh, the Connecticut Education Commissioner that's been tapped to be uh, Biden's Education Secretary and and what it may mean, uh, let's start with K through 12 and, and importantly, the uh, ongoing development of charter schools and other school choice programs that was really pressed by outgoing Secretary Betsy DeVos and outgoing President Trump. Well, uh, so the interesting thing about the new Secretary of Education uh, is that he actually comes from a small district, uh, Meriden, Connecticut, and then rose to be the state education commissioner. And so we don't really know that much about him because in terms of uh, large responsibilities, he's only been around a little bit. But he was backed by the teachers union for this position. He was supported by Linda Darling Hammond, who was the head of the Trump trans. Sorry. Anyway, Biden. Yes. The Biden transition for education. And uh, he has a record of supporting uh, critical ethnic studies, which is sort of the idea that all whites are inherently racist. So that is a bit of a problematic thing. Well, sure. I think um, it's clear. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I was just going to say, I mean, if 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 he, uh, if the focus is on, uh, you know, identitarian indoctrination, but not yeah. so much on trying to inhibit school choice, that may be fine. He may he may encourage more parents to start looking at their choices. Yeah, I though the, the, the president elect Biden has uh, certainly said that he wants to push back from charters. He he said to the teachers union, the National Education Association during the campaign, he didn't want any charters that were somehow at the expense of regular regular public schools and the democratic platform tries to back away from charters. No no you know, they have to certify that any new charter is some somehow only serving the most needy people and all, all sorts of constraints on any growth of charters. Um, I, I think it's a dark future for charter schools under this upcoming administration. But uh, in terms, yeah, go ahead. 
Well, just in terms of uh, charters and choice programs, I mean, do you see uh, another uh, effort to, for example, defund the D.C. Opportunity Scholarships or something specific that they'll do other than just try to uh, empower teachers' unions at the local level to do that work at the local level? I would say there will be uh, some kind of constraint of the of the D.C. charter school program. If you, if you think back to a uh, time when they could do so, the Democrats have generally tried to leave out funding for that program. Like we can all remember that John Boehner, when he was the head of the Republicans in the House, had to fight tooth and nail to get that continued. So I just I think there's going to be a problem for that program, which has been highly successful and very good for the children who have been in failing schools in, in the District of Columbia. With respect to college debt forgiveness, uh, Joe Biden yep. has sort of been, um, you know, moved around a little bit on it, particularly since uh, the November 3rd election, where he's now suggesting that rather than, you know, waving a wand and eliminating the college debt for uh, any student who comes from a family of with a household income of what, less than 150 grand, he's now saying he doesn't want to go that road alone. He wants uh, to enlist Congress to walk that road with him. And so does that uh, given what we know now about the composition of the Congress, do you think that will inhibit uh, that sort of debt forgiveness that has been proposed and was really part of the uh, sort of Bernie Sanders uh, agenda that he adopted as a candidate? Well, he watered down the Bernie Sanders <laughs> complete wiping out of that proposal. But he, his idea of forgiving tens of thousands of dollars of it is uh, it's not good. It, it's the wrong incentive for people who save and whose parents scrimp and save, people who work in college and pay their own way. It also is really a special subsidy people who go to graduate school to get law degrees, business degrees, and particularly teachers. Teachers get a bump when they get a graduate degree. They get a bump in their salary. So it's sort of another subsidy to teachers' unions. The teachers' unions back Biden, and he's trying to repay them, so to speak. Another reverse Robin Hood scheme of the left, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. With, with, res- with respect to campus culture, you know, there were there's a real move to uh, reestablish sort of a, a culture on the college campus that was consistent with uh, larger American culture, like you know, concepts foreign to college campuses these days like due process and the presumption of innocence right. when it comes to particular charges in addition to right. uh, in, in addition to, to, to edicts about uh, uh, free speech on campus as well or certainly encouragement right. to, uh, to adopt principles of free speech on campus. Where do you see right. uh, college campus life going under Biden and, Mar- and Cardona? Well, I think that it, it, there's every reason to be worried Biden promised that they would reinstitute these uh, kangaroo courts that didn't have the due process that you were talking about, didn't have things like cross-examination in, in cases of, of accusations of sexual assault. The courts, however, the regular courts have been pushing back against these campus courts. So we, even though they try to reinstate this, the courts may inhibit that move. Uh, other things like the cancel culture and deplatforming and things like that that President Trump tried to see if he could at least change the tone on that. I think we're going to have a problem. In a sense, we haven't seen just recently that much of canceling. Obviously, we haven't had much campus life, but uh, it, it, 
it's going to come back. One of the main things that's happened is that just conservative and libertarian speakers are not being invited at all. So they'll never go yes. through a mob problem or right. a canceling problem. Especially uh, known radicals like George Will, who's banned from Princeton. Yes, exactly. Perfect example. He is Williamson Evers, senior fellow at the Independent Institute in Oakland, California, director of the Institute's Center on Educational Excellence and former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Education for Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development under President George W. Bush. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show on the, uh, the discussion of what we can expect looking ahead to a Biden administration, as well as Dem Socialist control of the House and the Senate. We did a little bit on the education front with Williamson Evers before the break. Do a little bit more here, including with respect to markets as well as police, with Joel Ross. Joel Ross is an uh, investment advisor, newsletter I subscribe to. He has uh, some good rants. He's a sharp guy, a lot of good content. Uh, here's what uh, he has to say, and this uh, sort of speaks to what we've seen the last couple of days. You expect with uh, Democrats uh, winning both Senate seats in Georgia that uh, the market would tank, feeling like, oh, well, we're not going to have uh, gridlock. Uh, we're going to have uh, Democrats running roughshod over the private enterprise system. But uh, the counterargument from the rent seekers on Wall Street is, no, actually, this is the um, fiscal Goldilocks scenario. You get more short-term funny money from the Biden administration and his financial team. And uh, you have uh, uh, so just enough to provide the glide path to that, but enough opposition with moderates in the House and Senate caucuses, few though they are, perhaps enough, to block any sort of transformational uh, policy that wouldn't include Republican support, transformational policy that perhaps the Biden administration wouldn't want to do without some cover of bipartisan support, things like tax increases and Green New Deal gambits and the like. So uh, in the short term, Joel Ross writes, I expect the stock market to continue up for a while due to what will be perceived as massive fiscal and monetary stimulus. He goes on, the dollar down, gold and Bitcoin up. I wish I would have bought Bitcoin last year. And inflation to once again appear. Having cash will in time be a good thing. Bonds will be big losers as rates rise. At some point, reality will strike and it will be ugly. Just as an aside, uh, of course, you think you can, if we could just endlessly print money and distribute it, pretending like we didn't need an economy, we just need government and its printing press, then why stop at a $600 check or $2,000 check? It's sort of like the minimum wage. Let's not be stingy. Let's send everybody hundreds of thousands of dollars if there's no negative impact to this sort of government uh, printing of fiat money. Of course, there's a reckoning. Back to Ross, nothing will be done to solve the government pensions crisis. 
can be. There's not, a, there's not even enough funny money in D.C. for that. And uh, Illinois alone, nothing will be done to help charter schools nor make real improvements in bad public schools, as we were discussing with Evers. Charter schools will suffer as the teachers' union will now have total control. Law and order will suffer as cops will continue to be vilified and underfunded. Come back to that in a second. China will act up, as will Iran. The world will not be a stable place. It may appear to be for a while, but underneath, China will become much more of a threat, and Iran will create more chaos in the Mideast. Israel will be a greater risk of war with Iran. The flight from New York City, Illinois, and California will continue as taxes rise, and there will be not, and there will not be a full return to offices to create the revenue for local support businesses and especially restaurants. Right, and just going back to the uh, statement he made: law and order will suffer as cops will continue to be vilified and underfunded, uh, or defunded, as the perhaps more accurate uh, descriptor. Uh, he's exactly right, and it's already happening, or it's continuing. Just in case you thought it would abate with. Uh, the Democrats' newfound respect for law and order and for police as of what uh, transpired on Wednesday at the Capitol. Here's legislation that has been filed in my home state of Illinois. And remember, in Illinois, you have a supermajority of Democrat socialists in both the House and the Senate, as well as a Democrat socialist governor. So not much in the way of stumbling blocks for this to become law. Uh, this is what it does for police officers statewide. Eliminates qualified immunity for officers. So they'd be personally liable in civil suits. Eliminates officers' right to collectively bargain, uh, creates a special class of public employee uh, rights that can only negotiate over wages and uh, benefits. No contractual language regarding discipline and discharge procedures for police officers. So there you go. They'll be treated like they've been accused of uh, sexual assault on a college campus, the presumption of guilt rather than innocence and the absence of due process. Allows officers to be disciplined based on anonymous and unsubstantiated or unverified complaints. Mandates that unverified complaints be kept with no time limit, no removal, and no limits on them. Substantially increases both initial and ongoing training requirements, but does not provide any funding for increased costs. No assurances that the course will even be offered. Mandates uh, the body, the use of body cameras, all departments, every officer, but without, uh, of course, the funding uh, uh, with those mandates, the old unfunded mandate from the state to the local, just as we get from the federal to the state. That's just in Illinois. And uh, as we saw, oh, by the way, amid the violence on the Capitol, in the Capitol on D.C. yesterday, you also had violence, as Andy No reporting on the spot again, in Portland last night, too. And you had uh, clashes between police and protesters in front of Trump buildings in New York and Chicago. So the idea that... Um, uh, that, that, that this we're going to enter a new era of uh, being more thoughtful about law enforcement, that we're not going to sort of turn over the policy initiative to the pigs in a blanket, fly em, fry them like bacon, defund crowd is as much of a fairy tale as the idea that Joe Biden is going to unify this country. This is Dan Brock. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Stand and deliver, you let them put the fear on you. Stand and deliver, but not a word you heard was true. And if there's nothing you can say, there may be nothing you can do. 
ever be a free man? Or do you want to be a slave? Yeah. Welcome back to the show. And uh, what happened to uh, rock and roll rebellion among the young? This is the uh, subject of a piece in The Spectator from John Waters, who's an Irish author, former newspaper columnist. He's also a contributor to First Things. And we're pleased to be joined by John Waters. John, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hello, yes. So uh, the uh, generation, uh, the millennials and the Generation Zers have to rely on two 75-year-olds to imbue in them a spirit of rebellion. What happened to uh, the artists of their generation when it comes to uh, uh, that uh, uh, revolt against all things authority-laden? Yeah, this is an astonishing thing to me. I, I can't really quite understand it. I'm just trying to describe it in this article uh, What's happened to the rebel spirit of rock and roll? You know that that uh, you know grew up. We, I grew up with this music, and and it, it drew you to to certain kind of positions. You know, to be anti-establishment, not gratuitously, not for the sake of it, but you know, uh, in in the context of you know abuses of freedom, uh, tyranny, uh, all of those kind of impositions that you could imagine, and which we could say are happening right in front of our noses now. You would have expected this is the this was the moment of opportunity for the music to show itself in Western culture. Uh, you know, in times of real imposition by the state and the authority, uh, to show its teeth. And as you say, uh, only a couple of oldsters, uh, the originals, I guess, are among the originals. The early generation of rock and rollers have still the memory of why the music existed in the first place, having emerged from the plantations, the slave plantations, and from the, the hearts and souls of Irish immigrants uh, uh, crossing the Atlantic to find a new life, and all of people who had suffered uh, dispossession and abuse and oppression uh, had together, these music had, had, had collided, as I say, in Sam Phillips' kitchen with Elvis Presley uh, uh, back in 1953. Uh, all gone now, it seems. Well, and I, and I guess, too, I mean, thinking about uh, you know, Eric Clapton and Van Morrison giving you the anti-mask song that invokes the Magna Carta and the Constitution, I guess, uh, I guess the, uh, what you have now is those who used to speak for the downtrodden are instead consider themselves the downtrodden. Yeah, that's a very interesting way of seeing it. You know, I mean, it, 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 this is an amazing thing. I mean, that that the entirety of the culture now, it seems, is preoccupied with other matters or has indeed crossed the line. I mean, the, the old, you know, we used to talk about the man in the 60s and the 70s. The man was the kind of epitome of capitalist exploitation. You know, he was your enemy. He was the guy in the bad suit, you know. And, and you had to oppose him, and all his works in pumped. And uh, now it seems that the, the, you know all the great the, 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 the rock stars of the present seem to have crossed the line, and they're supping with the man. You know, you see people like uh, Bono sitting down with George Soros, these kind of guys, and you wonder, like, you know, what are they on? Uh, what map are they following? What star are they following? It seems to have gone completely wrong. But that also chimes with the appetites, it seems, of the new woke generation, who, for all of this, appear superficially to be highly ideological in terms of their agendas for the world. You know, when you think about it, these agendas, these ideologies are all imposed upon them. They're not uh, naturalistically 
spontaneously, you know, developed uh, in the imagination or in the culture of the time. Yes. It's a way that you call organic. The, 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 right. It's the lack of imagination, the lack of authenticity. And so in, in, uh, replacement of that you have this this uh, this this performance art of saying you know words that uh, i find objectionable are like violence to me i mean it's it's impossible to be a free spirit if you take that attitude toward the world so it shouldn't be uh, it shouldn't be a surprise i suppose that you have uh, people in their teens and 20s that are more you know, uh, willing to be uh, sentinels of the state, whether it's related to COVID or any other policy, than uh, those that you would expect to err on the side of safety a little bit more, uh, those that are older. Yeah, there's a strange thing. You know, I mean, I would have said, you know, that um, rock and roll never really had an ideology. You know, I mean, in certain senses and in certain places, you would have said, that it was kind of leaning leftward, for sure, you know, certainly as opposed to leaning leaning rightwards, you know. Uh, it was, you know, of that spirit of opposition. But that was at a time when, you know, and generally speaking, politics of the establishment were themselves right-wing, conservative. Now you could say the opposite has happened. And then this may be a critical factor here, that the left, by and large, is now in power. And, you know, this, this, we stand at this moment in the United States, at the very moment of this... Uh, a, a, a seeming crossover uh, again. Uh, so so uh, we have this odd situation where the the former rebels are now, you know, allied with the establishment, allied with the the, the interests of the corporations, uh, of 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 big political power, of high finance, uh, of you know big tech and 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 big pharma and all of these interests. And, and that they have actually—it's not that they're any—it's not possible to write songs on behalf of these people, of course. But what has actually happened is they have fallen silent. Uh, they have nothing at all to say, and they have hidden away, apart from we say from Van and Eric Clapton and and a couple of people. You know, the the Gallagher, no Gallagher of Oasis, formerly had come out as well, and uh, Ian Brown has come out. But a few and far between. You would have expected everybody on the rock and roll side of the line to be up in arms about this. And not necessarily because they're losing their own industry or business or life livelihood, uh, which they are, because uh, music is going to die if this goes on. Uh, but that, you know, this is the spirit of the music. This is the founding spirit that is used to oppose tyranny wherever it is being. John, let's hold it there. When we come back with John Waters, I want to talk uh, more about the lack of a rebellious rock and roll attitude among the young more with former irish newspaper columnist spectator and first things contributor john waters right after this. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Before the break, we were talking with John Waters about the lack of a rebellious rock and roll mindset among the young. 
In uh, your piece, John, you write, youth has been drained of all passion and empathy, so only ersatz emotions and responses survive. The rock and roll consciousness retains nothing but self-consciousness. Yeah, that's right. It's all kind of T-shirts now, isn't it? Like, you know, that they're actually living off the glories of the past, but they don't understand what they meant. And so there's like Hendrix and, and, and these guys, but they can't really get the kind of founding spirit. And they've reduced it to kind of really simplistic slogans, you know, uh, anti-fascism, anti-racism, all these things which are simplistic and out of their time and in, at the present moment. And so there is nothing which is contemporaneous in the energy that follows this music now. Uh, and nothing, therefore, coming back from the artists who are actually leading the way in speaking. I mean, it's not that this music is, I would say, it was never social in its comments, sociological, but it was, it was an existential cry from the heart of man, which was about the very things we're talking about. And that's the point. It's not that we're asking it to, to take up a position on behalf of any particular viewpoint. It's very interesting. I make the point, you know, that you actually look at the rock and rollers. You look at, say, someone like Springsteen. Like, it's very interesting to see. You go to Springsteen's songs and look at the characters in them and listen to their life stories and what they work at and what they do. You realize these are all deplorable. These guys all would have voted for Donald Trump. And yet their creator, Springsteen, is on the other side attacking Trump. This is a really interesting thing, you know, that, that we can't seem to find the position now for the sense of opposition to authority where it is necessary in our culture. It is shifting under our feet. And, and it's not, like in the 60s, it was clear, you know, you were against Joe McCarthy, or, you know, or whatever it was. Nixon, yes, for sure, you know. Uh, these are clear understandings. Now it is you're against Trump, but it's not the same thing. The world has changed under their feet, and they don't seem to be aware of it. I'm talking here about the old rock and rollers, the people like Springsteen, or the people like Bono, or you too, like whom I know. And, you know, and then even people like Dylan, who are silent, you know, in the face of this. You know, nothing to say at all. And that's the most ominous part, I think. Nothing to say at all, right? And so, and so, uh, you go from some of the names you mentioned to uh, the era of Justin Bieber and Cardi B, and uh, that's just not going to cut it, is it? No, it's not going to cut it, not at all. And my first thought was, would John Lennon have worn a face mask? Immediately, <laughs> my gut tells me absolutely not. But I went online, but what I did find was loads and loads of John Lennon face masks. People exploiting John Lennon's name to create face masks that fans of the Beatles or of Lennon would buy. Now, it seems to me to be a completely unwitting, unironic, uh, you, know, you know, defeat of everything that John Lennon stood for or is, might be perceived to stand for in his own time. John Waters, Irish author and former newspaper columnist, contributor to First Things and The Spectator. I will uh, tweet out his piece, The King is Dead. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Stay informed, stay courageous, so you can stay free and stay tuned for us tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.